So today, uh, we are back in our study of James, and James is a book where the author, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to dispersed Christians, Christians who were undergoing intense persecution for their faith, and many, due to that persecution, just departed the faith. They said, this isn't for me, Christianity, I'm, I'm just kind of walking away from this. Others still claimed the faith, but they weren't living like Christians. So some just altogether walked away, persecution's too much, this isn't for me, thought it was, it's not. Others said, no, I'm still a Christian, but I'm not going to live like it because it's bringing persecution, and who wants persecution? And so James, who once was a doubter, is now writing to them, saying, no, 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 here's what it looks like to live faithfully in accordance to the proclamation of faith that you are proclaiming. He wants them to not only proclaim the faith, but to live like those who are trusting Christ. Now, he wanted to connect the dots, so to speak, for them between faith and action, faith and good works. And he makes it clear throughout the book that genuine faith works. That's the theme that we've been consistently coming back to, and we, we really honed in on it last, or not last week, but two weeks ago, when in chapter 2, verse uh, 23, James affirms that Abraham himself was counted righteous by faith alone. It says that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the claim that he made, that he believed God, ended up, the very next verse, that he says, being justified by his actions. So in 2.23, it says that he believed God and was counted as righteousness. And the very next verse, in, in verse 24, he makes the point that when someone does claim to have believed God, that claim, friends, is only outwardly justified or proven true by their actions, by their good works. Now, why is it that James can say that? Well, it's because he agrees with Paul, who wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. A new creation leads to new action. If I say, friends, I've been created into something new. I was a man, but now I'm a dolphin. You'd understandably have some doubts. Many of those doubts would stem from what you can observe. You'd observe that I still live on land, and dolphins do not live on land. You'd observe that I speak English, and dolphins don't do that. That I walk around on two feet, and dolphins do not. You'd observe that I drive a car, and to date we have not gotten a dolphin to be able to drive a car. You'd point out, rightfully so, to what you can observe. And section by section, James is doing that very thing in this book. He's trying to help persecuted Christians understand what genuine faith looks like. If you have become a new creation, here are the actions, the observable content that we should be able to see. And so now we see how genuine faith uses words, or how genuine faith talks, how it uses its tongue. 
I wonder, how many words do you think the average person speaks on any given day? The average person, according to various studies, speaks anywhere from six to 16,000 words a day. Six to 16,000, that's a pretty broad range, but that's what these studies say. Now, this may not seem super daunting. However, I hope as we consider the power of words, as we consider the power of the tongue, that that begins to feel just a bit more weighty. Many of us have heard the phrase, sticks and stones may may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And what many of us have found out is that that phrase, that, that little phrase that we like to say at times has just proven to be resoundingly false. Words, friends, are powerful. In fact, on January 13th, 2018, residents in Hawaii received the following alert on their phones. All caps, it read, Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. One of my seminary professors was actually at Hawaii with his wife when that happened. And like many others, in light of their impending death, they reached out to their children to tell them they loved them one last time. There was mass hysteria on the island. Hotels were filing people into their basements. People were sprinting through the streets. They were even opening up uh, sewer drains to, to let children into these sewer drains for protection. Only later to find out that the emergency alert message was a mistake. Fourteen words caused mass hysteria. Friends, words are powerful. And considering the effect that words can have, how is it that Christians are to use their speech? How do they use their tongue? How do they use words? As we look at these 12 verses, we'll see that because words are so powerful, genuine faith strives to control the tongue. Words are powerful. And because they're so powerful, genuine faith strives to control the tongue, to control the words that it speaks. And so let's look at James. We're in chapter 3. If you're turning in one of the blue Bibles, that's going to be on page 1012. And I think this section can be easily broken up into, this passage can be broken up into two sections. You can see that on your bulletin. The first five and a half verses, so 1 through 6a, what we're going to see is that the tongue is powerful. And in the remaining of the passage, we'll see, and it must be controlled. The tongue is powerful. And it must be controlled. Let's look at these 12 verses together. Starting in verse 1, this is God's word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. 
how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text, we see the importance of controlling our tongues. We pray that as we look at this, that you, by your Spirit, would equip us to control our tongues. Help us to understand this passage the way that you want us to understand it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So our first section, the tongue is powerful. Now, right, right from the get-go, James gives a warning to those who teach. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So as a teacher, James himself acknowledges the danger of the task he's engaged in. Friends, I was out there just a minute ago trying to get my notes to work because they were giving me some fits, and I feel the weight of saying the wrong thing. Every week I come up here with a good amount of notes because it's a weighty task to be able to proclaim God's word, and I I have a responsibility to do it rightly. James acknowledges the danger of the task that he's engaged in. And it's a temptation in every age to adjust the message to appease our audience. One commentator put it this way. He says, with their words, teachers can guide their students as bridles guide horses or rudders guide ships. Likewise, with their words, teachers can destroy students as a spark sets ablaze a forest. With our words, there's an opportunity to do great good and to do great harm. That's why it's such a big deal when we recognize the brother as an elder here. Elders must have the ability to teach. doesn't necessarily mean preaching, but they must be able to sit across from somebody and help them understand what God's word says. That's part of the shepherding responsibility. And it's not just truth-telling. Some, some in here may just say, hey, you know, I, I just tell the truth. Man, I, I, I'm just trying to, to proclaim the truth, and if people can't handle that, then that's on them. Well, I encourage you to consider Paul's words to Timothy, a young pastor. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, he says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so, church, pray for your elders. Pray that we would be like what Paul describes in 2 Timothy 2. That we would teach faithfully in our content and 
in our approach. Those who teach, friends, will stand before God and be judged with greater strictness. And so it is a weighty task. Pray for those here who, who teach. Pray for me, pray for other elders, pray for those who are leading groups, help them. Pray for them. But then James shifts from those who, who teach to everyone else. Look in verse 2. He says, for we all stumble. So he talks about the teachers, and then in verse 2 he says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble with what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so James grounds his reasoning for verse 1, not many of you should be teachers, in verse 2. Shouldn't be teachers because, because we all stumble in what we say. In fact, we're told that the way we speak is an indicator of our spiritual maturity. That word perfect, the original word there can be translated as perfect or mature or complete or fully developed. And so he's not getting at perfection, he's getting at maturity. So the way we talk, friends, reveals our sanctification. It reveals our spiritual development. It reveals our spiritual maturity. He uses the word bridle, and that word was used earlier. It was used in, in chapter 1, verse 26, where we read, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So in one twenty-six, we see bridle his tongue. In chapter 3, verse 2, we see bridle his whole body. And so clearly, genuine faith, friends, is engaged in bridling, in showing self-control, which is probably why self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So is this, is this passage about self-control, or is this passage about the tongue? Well, both. And it's because controlling the tongue, friends, is directly correlated to controlling the body. And James uses two examples to make that point. He first points to the bit in a horse's mouth, the piece of metal that goes right in a horse's mouth, that connects to the bridle, that connects to the reins, and the person riding the horse is then able to control this, this massive animal just because there's a bit in its mouth. And he also points out the rudder on a ship. In both instances, this small object, whether it's a bit or a rudder, guides the larger object, the horse or the ship. And James points out that the tongue is the same way. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. This small member of our body impacts us in great ways. It can impact for good, or as I said earlier, it can impact for harm. And, and James unpacks this even more. He says, look, how, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. He says that, look, the, the tongue, it is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. Look, incredible wildfires. I mean, we've seen some of them. There were some even uh, last week in Chile, which they say was probably the most deadly wildfires that country has ever experienced. Some, some of the most terrible wildfires, the, the most massive and most destructive wildfires, often come by something small, like a little spark going away from a campfire or a cigarette butt being flicked out of a car window and landing on some patch of dry grass. Look, God tells us the tongue is just like that tiny little fire, that tiny little spark that goes off of the campfire. It can do immense damage. In fact, he says that it's a world of unrighteousness. Now, what, what does that mean, a world of unrighteousness? Well, what he's getting at is that packed into the tongue are endless possibilities of unrighteousness, endless possibilities of harm. I mean, Consider, just for a second, consider how much harm 
how much destruction has come from the commands of wicked leaders. Think of Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Mussolini. Literally tens of millions of people dead because of the words of these men. One person commenting on this said, every sort of evil found in the world finds an ally in an uncontrolled tongue. Every sort of evil found in the world finds an ally in an uncontrolled tongue. So let's recap what we've gone over just so far. First, that not many should be teachers. Why? Because teaching requires the tongue. It requires the use of words, whether it's speaking or writing. Just because you may be writing and not actually physically using your tongue doesn't get you off the hook. He's referring to words, the way that we use words. So he says, not many of you should be teachers because teaching requires the use of words. And when words are many, transgression is not lacking. The tongue is a small part of the body. It directs the whole body, like a rudder directs a ship or a bit directs a horse. And because the tongue is so powerful, if not tamed, it can cause a world of destruction and a world of pain. So despite its size, the tongue has great power, great potential to do good or to do harm. And what we use it for, church, what we use our tongue for reveals our spiritual maturity. So Christian, as we consider that, what does your speech say about your spiritual maturity? Do you use your words for good or for harm? When you speak about things you're passionate about, when you engage with those who disagree with you, when you're trying to convince someone of the truth, are you quarrelsome and harsh? Or do you reflect what Paul commanded Timothy to be, gentle and patient? If your words, if your social media activity, if your texts, emails, etc., if your communication, the way you've used your words over the last 12 months, were posted online for everyone to see, would people come away saying, I can tell by the way this person speaks, by this person's gentleness and patience, I can tell that they genuinely love God and they genuinely love their neighbor. Would people get that impression from the way you've used your words even just the last 12 months? Friends, the tongue is far more powerful than we give it credit. And because of that, it must be controlled. Which leads us to our second section. The tongue must be controlled. Why? Because, James says, it's set among us. This, this fire, this thing that has so much power, that has so much potential to destroy, this, this tongue that is a world of unrighteousness is set among us. And if it's not controlled, it will destroy us. He says the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, A reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James uses four illustrations to convey the difficulty of taming the tongue. Talks about beasts, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures. And he says, look, all of these can be tamed. And we've seen it. We see elephants or lions at a circus. We see a cheetah at the Columbus Zoo running its course. We see an eagle at a football game, which you may see today, during the national anthem. 
We see pythons draped around people's necks walking through town. Danielle and I saw this when we were in Louisville. Two people walking by, one with what looked like a boa constriction, the other one a python. It's crazy. They've tamed these animals. We see killer whales at SeaWorld. We see emotional support alligators. And that's a real thing. You can look that up later. But friends, no human being can tame the tongue. The tongue is more powerful than any beast, than any bird or reptile or sea creature. Consider that just for a moment. Our words have the ability to set an entire course of life on fire. That's what James says in verse 6. How often do we hear of the damage that a parent's harsh words did to a child? Many of us can, can think of harsh things that our parents said when we were younger. Parents, your children need you to control your tongue, especially when they're young and they're sponges and absorb everything and believe everything that you say. That's sobering for us parents. If you're married, use your words to affirm and build up and strengthen one another. Control your tongue with one another. And look, the way that we use our words it should be consistent. And that's what James gets at in, in the last four verses here. He says, he says, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is pointing out the inconsistency of those who claim to follow Christ, but then speak as if they don't follow Christ. Those who claim to follow Christ, but do not control their tongue, do not control the words that they use. In one moment, they're blessing God, whether that's through song or through prayer or for conversation. And the next moment, they're cursing those made in God's image, those who are made to reflect God. And that kind of inconsistency is not good. Friends, we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And when we use our tongue, when we control our tongue to use it to praise God, that is one of the highest and noblest things that we can do with our tongue. But when we use that same tongue to curse those who are made in God's image, that is one of the lowest things that we can do with our tongue. When I say curse, I'm not referring to uh, Harry Potter calling curses on the people. I'm referring to speaking ill, speaking poorly. And so a natural question may come up that does that mean that Christians never say anything negative about others? Well, I'd say no. Christians speak the truth. They're called to speak the truth. And friends, sometimes the truth is negative. It's just the world that we live in. But speaking the truth like Christ is the kind of speech that keeps God's glory and this person's good at the forefront. Does that make sense? You're considering God's glory, you're, you're saying what is true, what God has ordained to be true, and this person's good at the forefront of your speech. Cursing others is just disregarding your neighbor and elevating self. One commentator put it this way. He said the real point of verses 9 through 12 is that if we are cursing people and blessing God at the same time, it's a sign that something is wrong at a deeper level with our Christian maturity. Friends, it should not be so 
that we are able to praise God in one moment and then curse those who are made in his image the next moment. That does not mean that we don't say difficult things to those who need to hear the truth. That, that, don't hear me say that. We need to speak the truth, but we need to do it with love and with gentleness. And there is a way to do that faithfully. So for the sake of ourselves and those around us, we must keep a close watch on our words. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a Christian, I want to ask, have you ever considered why it is that even non-Christians agree with this principle? What James is getting at is, hey, control your tongue. Your tongue can do a lot of damage. And Christians say, say, okay, I'm going to try to control my tongue. These people are made in the image of God. Why is it that non-Christians as well agree that controlling the tongue is a fundamentally good thing? We hear about actors who lose their cool and start berating somebody on set. And then they have to issue a public apology. They have to do a TV interview to say, hey, I, I, I was wrong here. I made a mistake. See, celebrities flip out on uh, paparazzi and then they have to issue a public apology. We see coaches who verbally abuse their players and they lose their jobs because even non-Christians recognize that an uncontrolled tongue is fundamentally not good. Now, Christians can say, hey, we agree with that, and the reason is because when someone is not controlling their tongue, they're destroying someone made in God's image. And because we love God and love our neighbor, we want to magnify the image of God, and we want to help our neighbor see what is good and true. But for the non-Christian, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'm very grateful that you're here. Maybe during lunch today or sometime during the week, just think to yourself, why is it that even me, who's not a Christian, who doesn't believe in, that we're made in the image of God, why do I think it's wrong for someone to have an uncontrolled tongue? I mean, if you remove the image of God from the conversation, and it's just two lumps of bacteria interacting with each other, then who's to say what's the right way to do that and what's the wrong way to do that? If you're a Christian, I would encourage you this morning to commit to speaking in a way that reflects this passage, that reflects Ephesians 4.29, which says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And here's, here's a motivation behind that, friends. Follow me here. If we control our tongues, then what that does is not only does that glorify God, but it also accelerates the discipleship of those around us. This isn't just a moralistic, do better, speak nicer sermon. This is a, hey, if we control our tongues, not only do we glorify God, but we also accelerate the discipleship of those around us because we are saying what is true. We are saying what is good. We are saying what is consistent with God's character. And if we consistently hear those things more and more and more, then that accelerates the discipleship of those that are around us. Friends, is this a blind spot in your life? Maybe you've been careless with your words. If so, if you're in that category, you feel like I, I've been careless with my words, I've not been as careful with my words as I should be, then I would encourage you just, just throughout the week, meditate. Maybe every morning, meditate on Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 to 37, two simple verses, but just consider those two verses where Jesus says, I tell you, 
On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. If you consider that each morning, that every word that I speak, I'm going to give an account for. Pray through that. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to control your tongue, to not speak careless words, to speak what is good and true. Friends, words are so powerful. And so genuine faith, because of how powerful words are, genuine faith strives to control the tongue. I'm like, if you feel like you're nailing this, then you haven't read the passage, at least not carefully. But also, if you feel convicted by this, look again at the passage. Verse 2 says that we all stumble. Not just non-Christians, not just mature or immature Christians. We all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in what we say. Therefore, friends, none of us are perfect. And verse 8 doubles down on this again. It says, no human being contained the tongue. But you know what the good news is? No human being can contain the tongue, but God can. And in fact, Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God's word. He is God's word. God's word controlled perfectly. We read this in the call to worship in, in John 1.14, and the word became flesh. God's word, God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's, such a, it's a common verse, but don't, don't read past it quickly. God's word became flesh and lived among us, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This God-man was full of truth. Yes, and so that means, friends, that we too need to be full of truth. We need to tell others the truth, even when it's difficult. But he was also full of grace. And so in our effort to tell others the truth, let's do it in a controlled way that reflects God's grace. I wonder, is your speech full of truth and grace? Jesus not only was God's controlled word, but he himself controlled his tongue perfectly. He said only what the Father told him to say. See this in John 12. He says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus is God's controlled word. And when we look at Jesus we see the God-man controlling his tongue perfectly. All of us have failed at that. We've all fallen short. None of us contain the tongue. But Jesus has, and he did it perfectly. And we'll be justified by our words. We stand before God. And friends, if you want to stand before God with your resume, it's not going to go well for you. But if you stand before God with Christ's resume given to you, then you will be seen as one who has perfectly controlled the tongue. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian today, I hope that you feel the weight of controlling your tongue. I hope Christians and non-Christians feel that. But I hope you also feel the weight of you are not 
inheriting Christ's resume at this moment. And so you will stand before God condemned because your words will condemn you. However, you can use your tongue today to change your life forever. In fact, if you use your tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. So again, we see we're justified by faith alone. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And all who call on Christ receive his Holy Spirit. And friends, it is not through our will, trying harder and harder and harder, that we're going to suddenly tame the tongue. We need God's Spirit to equip us to do that. We need his Holy Spirit. And when we call on Christ with our tongue, we call on Christ, confess our own sinfulness, and we confess his, our need for him, he not only changes us, but he then sends us his Holy Spirit to help us do what he commands. And we see right here, the command to control the tongue. And so it's only, friends, it's only through his spirit that controlling the tongue is possible and his spirit is made available freely to you through faith alone. Use your tongue today to call on Christ. Christian, as we go from here, use your tongue to to speak truth, but to do it in a gracious way, to say what is true, to not neglect your responsibility to proclaim God's truth, but do it in a way that reflects Christ who was full of grace and truth. There's two sides that we can fall into here. We can say, I'm going to speak truth and I'm going to do it in a way that is just domineering and aggressive and, and, and harmful. Or you can say, because it seems mean to tell the truth, I'm not going to tell the truth at all. I'm just going to love people. I'm just going to be nice. And friends, we as Christians need to walk that path between both of those. If we fall into the gutter on either one, then it's harmful. But if we walk that line, then we can tell what is true. We can say what is true in a way that is helpful, in a way that reflects Christ, in a way that is full of truth and full of grace. We have the ability to use words, and that is a gift. God is a God who communicates. He uses words. And we, being made in his image, have the ability to use words, but we also have a responsibility to do it the way that God has commanded And so let's do that as we go from here. Let's proclaim God's word. Let's proclaim what is true. And let's do it in a way that reflects his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a perfect treasure. That there is no error in it. There are no mistakes. And thank you for sending your word to to be flesh and to dwell among us. Jesus, thank you for controlling your tongue perfectly. Help us by your spirit to control our tongues. And as we fall short in that, as we so often do, remind us of the need to have our sin removed and remind us of the good news that that need is accomplished through you. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for taking away our sin. Thank you for your spirit who equips us to control our tongue. Help us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.